Coming up next, the booking reads The Brothers Karamazov. Everybody, welcome to the Bookening. My name is Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. There's Brandon right there. He's a scholar who's a baller of books. That's right. You got it right, Nathan. Be sure to listen to last week's episode to find out how we can give Brandon a little bit of money and get him to read Ready Player Two. It's the only way I'm going to do it. It's the only way he's going to do it, and we want to make sure that Brandon's paid a little bit for his services on this podcast, which he has generously donated now for going on six years. Be sure and listen for the fuller story last time. Don't want anybody to miss that one just because it doesn't have a awesome book title in it. Maybe it will. Maybe I'll put what book should I lure him in with, Jake? Like Ready Player Three. Ready Player Three. Ready yeah. Player You. Ready Player You. That's the name of the episode. There we go. I love it. Ready Player You. So why don't you introduce the other <laughs> guy, Brandon? His name is Jacob Kyle Minsel. And he's here to say... That he's going to talk about Dostoevsky in a fanatical way. <laughs> is it going to be a fanatic? Which is the way that Dostoevsky would want us all to talk about his books, either like fanatical lunatics or madmen. I mean, I don't I guess there's a difference between a fanatical lunatic and a madman, but you know, I was looking about, it's all shades of madness with Dostoevsky. I read this book several months ago and I wrote some notes at the time and the top, I was looking over the other day and the top note said, everyone is Holden Caulfield. That's not bad. Yeah. Which I think is... A pretty accurate summation of this Well book. done, Nathan, of a few months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, hey, Nathan, good insight. All right, but- Did you, you say thank you, Nathan? I did say thank you to Nathan. Good. He was already dead. So mm. we need to talk to the other guy, though. We are kind of in a looper movie. Nathan goes back and kills himself frequently to prevent himself from saying things that might embarrass himself. Yeah. And look, <laughs> look at what good it's done me. Yeah. Folks- they want to hear from the other guy, Brandon. You haven't actually like drawn him into conversation. Oh, his name is Jacob Kyle Menzel. And he's here to say, <laughs> oh, we're in a loop. <laughs> he's going to talk about Dostoevsky in a fanatical way. <laughs> right, Jake? No. Oh, well, there you go. See, he's in now, though, at least. He thought he was out, but we brought him back in. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite formulas from this podcast is when Nathan's like, da, 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 and then Brandon's like, da, 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 da. and Nathan's like, da, 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 and then Brandon's like, da, 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 da. And then Jake's like, Dead. duh. <laughs> it's always good for a laugh. Jake's just cracking up over there. And speaking of good for a laugh and cracking up. Let's talk about Dostoevsky. Let's, let's talk about old Fyodor Dostoevsky. Oh, boy. Folks, we're reading The Brothers K. I'm excited to read this one, or I'm excited to talk about this one, because a lot of people say this is it. This is the great novel. And I don't know when I've found myself more at odds with humanity in term like we're 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 going into kind of a c.s lewis kind of thing or something like this is probably going to be the bookening at its most provocative maybe we'll see i want to do justice to people who like dostoevsky there are some good things about him there's a lot to unpack and we're going to do it here over the next several episodes but that all starts with context excited for context jake yep jake why don't you introduce the notion of context well I think the notion of context is, I don't know, we're all going to die. Yep. That is kind of the notion behind Mm. all context that I bring to the story, or to the show at least. In a world where man has free will. Originally, Nathan ran the show with a nice little gimmick called the Contextual Texan, Mm -hmm. and Brandon was supposed to shoot his six shooters and go into context about the author and the work in question. Bang, bang, (laughs) bang. Yep. And so that's how we start every book that we read. But that was more in the Dostoevsky phase of the show. We have now matured into the Tolstoy phase of the show, mm-hmm. but we don't do that so much. And thus, context is also kind of matured too. I think context has grown up over the years. Yeah. It's true. So. Well, Brandon, we are your humble disciples. You are the grand inquisitor himself today of context. I'm going to kill you guys. (laughs) Please don't. You should have never come back. What do we need to know about old 
Dostoevsky. What do we need to know about him? Well, we need to know that he is a contemporary of many of the writers that we've read on the show. Is that true, actually? He was born in 1821 and he died in 1881, just shy of his 60th birthday. As many, many people that I've listened to like to point out, mm. just shy is what a lot of them actually say, just shy of his 60th birthday. Now you've said it too. Now I've said it too, so I joined their mighty ranks. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, One of the teeming hordes of uncreative Yep. Jerks. Yep, Brandon's joined the Comment teeming hordes of uncreative jerks. Brandon Chastain, one of the teeming hordes of the uncreative jerks. You know, Roger Ebert had a show with Siskel. This is my last, what do you call those things when you stop being on point? Rabbit trail? Yeah, this is my uh, last rabbit trail, folks. Roger Ebert. sequitur Roger Ebert was a great writer. and He was. He was also a, a good TV guy. And he said, in print, cliche is the enemy of print. And he said- cliche is the friend of spoken word like when you're on a tv show film or, is probably what he actually or, said well no he didn't say film because then people would have assumed he thought meant movies should be cliched but what he actually meant was like when he did his reviews with siskel and they went back and forth on tv you wanted a handy cliche so that you could communicate your idea vocally as quickly as possible and as effectively as possible but not when he's writing but not when you're writing so i agree roger ebert is a good writer He's a very good writer. Yeah. I've really been reading a lot of like trying to get into the art of the personal essay lately and his comes up. So yeah, so he's, he's, he's a, he was a good his essay on speculating about well, he, the one he wrote when he would had found out he was going to die from mm-hmm. cancer. It's good. It's very moving. It's also very atheistic. Oh, very atheistic. It, yeah. It is very moving. Yeah. So he talks about his friendship with Dawkins. Yeah, that's right. That was weird. All of which has nothing to do with. The great Dostoevsky. Well, I mean, I guess as far as someone who's speculating about death. Yeah. (laughs) What'd you say, Nathan? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Let's not poison the well here, buddy. No, no, no. We're not poisoning the well. We have to drink from that well over the next We're not going to poison the well. We are not about to talk about a lunatic, epileptic madman who was uh, addicted to gambling and lived a miserable life that ended in a miserable death. Oh, weird. I thought we were going to talk about Dostoevsky. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's who we're talking about. So let's talk about him, Nathan. Want to? Yeah, sure. As I already said, he was born in 1820 and he died in 1881. That's about all we need to know about him. All right. No, this makes him contemporaries with some of the great... So he was... He's... Everybody knows Dostoevsky. He's one of those names everybody's heard of. He's considered to be one of the greatest novelists to have ever lived. And he's also very divisive along the lines of, do you think he's a great novelist because he's a great artist? Or does something else make him great? And you usually fall on one side of that argument. He was contemporaries with Tolstoy, who we have read multiple times on this show. And loved. And loved. He and Tolstoy, along with uh, someone who was a little bit earlier than them, Nikolai Gogol, who wrote Dead Souls. And then also, and Pushkin, who would have been a, a little bit earlier than them as well. And then you have Turgenev and then Chekhov a little bit later than them. These guys are the flower, they're the golden age of Russian literature. They would be similar to another golden age, which was happening along the same, around the same time, which would have been the golden age of the British novel. Started with Austin, who we'll be talking about next, mm-hmm. and then found its flowering in Charles Dickens. Mm. And some people would put Thackeray in that same camp, George Eliot. This was a time in the world when the novel was coming into its own. This would be like the 70s for uh, cinema, right? Mm-hmm. With who Coppola and Coppola, Scorsese, De Palma. Yeah. So I'm right. It's called the golden seventies, right? With Mm -hmm. cinema. And so this would be similar to that. The novel was coming into its own and the Russians in their typical fashion found their own way to make this art. And they brought the Russianness to it. (laughs) Weightier, a little bit darker. There's that famous meme that's going around where I forget what it is. Yes. That people people love to send us that meme and I'm always happy to see it. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. English literature, I will die for freedom. French literature, I'll die for love. American literature, I'll die for... Maybe Americans' freedom and British's honor. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll die for honor. I'll die for love. I'll die for freedom. And then Russian literature, I will die. Yeah. Which is more true if, I mean, for those who have read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, you know that's more true of Dostoevsky. So Dostoevsky actually is the one who kind of flavors 
Russian literature in most people's mind, I think. I think a lot of people, when they pick up Tolstoy, expect him to be Dostoevsky. And they're very surprised that he's something very different. When you see like a, not that this is at all a current reference, but when you see a Woody Allen movie where he's conjuring up Russian literature and talking about how weighty it is, and it's all about death, and it's kind of related to, you know, in cinema, it'd be like the Ingmar Bergman films and stuff like that. Like, they're really thinking about Dostoevsky there. Yeah, because anyone who's read War and Peace knows that that's not really what's going on with that book. That's vibrant. And, it's Anna Karenina as well, right? I mean, yes, Anna ends up dying. Spoilers. Spoilers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. But that's not the main, unless you're just some hack English professor who decides to only read the Anna Karenina parts with your book club, then that's not what the book's about. And that, yes, that is a jab at a former professor of mine who I have absolutely no respect for. But <laughs> Sounds like a hack. <laughs> Let's just she, skip the best part of this novel. Yeah, she's the one. She had like the Jane Austen class that everybody wanted to take. And all the girls came out of that Jane Austen class thinking they were now the most profoundly deep feminist thinkers to have ever lived on the face of the planet. Hmm. Kind of like old like, Jane Austen herself. Yeah. They're just like, man, this, this changed my life. Jane Austen, she just helps you see so much about the feminist realities of the world. And you're like, this is Jane Austen you're reading, right? So it's not like the Simone de Beauvoir class. This is just Jane Austen. Are we reading the same novel here? Anyways, that's for the next podcast. Yeah. So it's important to realize that he's in that moment. He's in that moment of history when the novel's coming into its own and he's doing his own thing with it. In fact, some of the criticisms of him that I may or may not agree with say that he was adopting some of the worst aspects of the novel in the 1800s and adding a sort of Russian depression to it. In other words, sentimental, maudlin, melodramatic, unrealistic. So like, so it shouldn't be surprising that we can talk a bit about his childhood now. He was born in 1821. His dad was a retired military doctor who then worked in a hospital for the poor. And so going to this hospital with his father, he would see a lot of the sort of down and out people who would become essential to his books later on. His mother was the daughter of a wealthy merchant. So therefore she brought a bit of the class and taste to the house, to the home. And this meant for them, they read a lot of Homer. They read a lot of Shakespeare. They le- but they also read Radcliffe, which is interesting because we'll be talking about Radcliffe in our episodes on Northanger Abbey. Hmm. Radcliffe was a Gothic writer. And so he would have been introduced to that sort of style of writing. And some people argue that Dostoevsky is basically taking those features of the novel that he would have adopted from British writing and putting them into Russian writing and didn't have the good taste to actually tell a story that was vibrant and alive like Tolstoy. Anyways, I, I would argue there's, there's some truth to there's that. There's some I stuff think. about him that's so, a lot more similar to a gothic potboiler melodrama type thing than it is to like a George Eliot psychodrama. Yeah. And so that was his childhood. He had a fairly... You don't want to say happy childhood, but his dad did eventually end up becoming quasi-nobility because and was given a position. And so they got an estate and he would spend his summers on this estate. And it would be on this estate that eventually later on in his life, his father would have a mysterious death. He was either cardiac arrest or he was murdered by his coachman or his serfs killed him. (laughs) And it's a mysterious death and no one really knows what happened, but... It, it, this did become fundamental to Dostoevsky's psychology later on because of various things that would happen. But Dostoevsky was a tormented soul in the sense that, you know, you meet these people who are consumed by their own, it's like most of the characters he writes, consumed by their own lack of control over themselves and then the guilt they feel over that lack of control over themselves. When he was around 15 or 16, he went off to an engineering military academy, but quickly proved that that wasn't what he was meant to do. His mother died around the same time. This would have a profound effect on his life. He also developed his first symptoms of epilepsy. So, and this would become predominant in his novels as well. It's in The Idiot. Prince Mishkin is an epileptic. It's also in Brothers Karamazov, where interestingly enough, Smerdyakov is an epileptic. Murderer. Yeah. So. Maybe he killed his own dad. Yeah, and so that's that's the point, is that their dad was, mm. from all accounts, a fairly good father. But, but the was, serfs and coachmen like him. Well, but he was also stern. He was a pretty st- strict taskmaster. 
And so those who were under him, even though he was, he took care of his children, he was also fairly strict and he was committed to the Russian Orthodox faith. We'll talk more about that later because that's pretty essential to this novel with Father Zosima and all that stuff. But anyway, so he brought this very profound Orthodox, I was about to say Christian, but let's say Orthodox faith to his house, a sense of sin, a sense of guilt, a sense of a commitment to Russian Orthodoxy. Also a sternness and a severeness that was enough that Dostoevsky did deal with guilt over the death of his father later on. Like he was wondering, like, did I cause this by wanting it? And so a lot of the stuff that he deals with in the Brothers Karamazov is actually comes from his own life, right? This sort of uh, fragmented idea of himself that became Alyosha and Ivan and Dmitri mm. and Smerdyakov. So... After that, so he, he would develop a severe taste for gambling <laughs> that would haunt him the rest of his life and which would plunge him into debt. A lot of biographers like to point out the fact that Dostoevsky, unlike Turgenev and Tolstoy, did not come from the nobility. His father eventually became nobility, but he was not raised as nobility. And this colors his work. I mean, he talks about the down and out. He talks mm-hmm. about those who are on the edges of society. Which is why he became so popular with the sort of grungy affections of the the 20th century, I would argue. And that's why Nietzsche loves him and all these people love him is because they slowly want to worship and praise their own lusts and desires, right? And so Dostoevsky becomes very popular for that mentality, the sort of thing that would give us HBO shows. Mm Mm-hmm. He went off and quickly actually found fame as a writer. He translated an Honor de Balzac book from French into Russian with some mild success, but his first big success was Poor Folk. And so he did this in May of, ni- of 1845. When he wrote this, this was based on his experiences with his dad in the hospital for the poor. And so he took some of these experiences, wrote this poor- book called Poor Folk, and then gave it to some of his friends. The story he tells is that these friends then took it to a critic who praised it and said, you guys have the next Gogol on your hands. And then they came and woke him up at four in the morning and said, you've got to get this done. You've got to finish this. This this is amazing. You're a genius. And for the most part, that played out in the way that the book was received. He became a minor celebrity, but then his next books weren't as well received. And this kind of crushed him as a, you know, because he was very... As probably shouldn't surprise someone if you've read Dostoevsky and realize that most of his characters are him. Um, he was very devastated by this sort of treatment of his later books. Mm-hmm. And so, a stable guy like that, huh? Yeah, a stable guy like that. And most of his money that he, uh, he would use to gamble and would lose most of it. It became severe later on in his life, but this was something that he really dealt with. In fact, one of his most famous books is called The Gambler. So. It was at the same time that he was a young man in his 20s, in the 1840s, that he became involved with a group of young socialists. And to really understand what happens next, and this may be the most famous part of Dostoevsky's life, to re- but to really understand it, we need to take a pause. So we're going to take two pauses in this context. This will be the first one. We're going to take a step back and kind of talk about where Russian history is up to this point. The next pause we'll take is when we get to the Brothers Karamazov, we'll take a pause and we'll talk about Russian Orthodoxy. Yeah. Sound good? Sounds great. All right. Any questions so far? No questions. Jake, you got any questions? Nope. He's writing over there. Maybe he's writing a poem based on the wonder of this context. Roses are red, violets are blue. Dostoevsky stinks and so do you. Arguably a better poem than the Grand Inquisitor. I... I would argue that. More accurately. <laughs> feel reflects reality. <laughs> Arguably a better poem than anything the New Yorker has published lately. That's Can't right. harp on that enough. <laughs> I mean, that basically is, I mean, a summary of this book. Yeah. To be honest. Like, that yep. is, I mean, you can say it's a critique of Dostoevsky in the book, or you can say it's Dostoevsky's goal mm-hmm. is for you to come away thinking roses are red, violets are blue, except why would you ever bother looking at the flowers? That's I stink yeah. and so do you. But there's faith, Jake. I don't know what it means or what it, doesn't it does mean or anything. why, but... It doesn't mean anything. But if you have faith and you're really nice and you suffer a lot, then it's good or something. Yeah, you can either repent and change or you can atone through guilty, cathartic suffering 
or you can suppress and ignore the fact that you have zero self-control and are given over to decadence and have no hope of ever changing and project that onto everybody else in the entire world, which is why, which is a great summary of pretty much everybody I've ever known that has been like, Dostoevsky's the best in deep. Yeah. And, yeah, and an accurate summary of his worldview, which is total crap. That's true. But spoilers. That's that was a nice. That's break. my take. That was a nice <laughs> yeah. digression. Whoa, people! We, we, it's important. We, we have a mutual friend who died. I just, I'm just going to say it. Who died of heroin, if I'm not mistaken. One of the most brilliant people you'll ever meet. But this is him. Yeah, very and, smart, very engaging, very funny, very warm, nice guy, and gave himself over to this stuff, and now he's dead. Yeah. So, and he's not the only person that we know that has absolutely destroyed their lives through their decadence and lack of self-control who championed us so have long before we knew them and through our knowledge of them championed Dostoevsky for all the same reasons they have mm-hmm. the same exact view they find in themselves no self-control and an utter disposition to embrace all of the decadence of their lives and they think the way to cope with it is not to repent and change they, they may say that they're repenting but the actual understanding of repentance that they have is to atone for their sins by lashing themselves and embracing a a life of carrying around their sad, guilty conscience and seeking catharsis wherever they can for it through placing themselves in situations where they suffer. Mm -hmm. And eventually they break. They all do because nobody can atone for their own sins. Yeah. And they kill themselves. They get themselves hopped up on drugs and kill themselves. They harm other people in depraved ways Mm -hmm. and it's just so common like it drives me nuts i want to wage war against dostoevsky i hate him but hey dostoevsky gets them man and he writes about but but you do well to speak to your point we've all been there at some point in our lives right but you have to well have some enough self-awareness to get beyond that and i was reading i was listening to the notes from the underground because that's something i hadn't listened to in a while and that was influential for like most people think that's like where existentialism begins is Mm -hmm. with that book. I would say if you're going to read one, read that because it's short and it's actually got most of his. Yeah, but that's one of the best professors, one of the best professors I ever had at IU. Mark that as the, the beginning of existentialism. Yeah. It was a really great philosophy professor. Existentialism, Nietzsche and Kierkegaard were his thing. Yeah. But it was always, and there's a book you can find that's just a sort of survey of existentialist thought and it's called existentialism from dostoevsky to sartre yeah but then you have to ask yourself the question you have to ask yourself about any art you know is it good for you to feed on this sort of thing and when does that begin to amplify and encourage things in yourself because you begin to see yourself like this is awesome Ivan, dimitri these guys if i you know i'm like them and i can't help myself i'm just right. plunging head first just like dimitri man and i can't stop myself and Dostoevsky yeah. gets how hard yeah. it is to stop myself. And so yeah, therefore, and it, just, it just feeds your... I do too, yeah. And it, because I'm really smart and deep. Yeah, exactly. And I get it. And I, it's when you're as smart and deep as I am, you have a hard time seeing the point of even attempting self-control because, you know, everywhere you whack the mole, it pops back up again. Yep. And the only thing, the one thing that Dostoevsky does have... And at a certain point, carrying that whipping of yourself and thinking that you're just going to like feel bad enough to be good to other people, like eventually you break. Especially if you're reading books where, so there's, the, I keep thinking about this Jordan Peterson video. If you Google Brothers Karamazov and you spend a little time, I like to see what's on YouTube a lot of times with these books, just to see if huh. there's like a, a, a lecture by a professor or something like that. A lot of times there'll be interesting stuff. If you do that, one of the first things that will come up is a little, as, as often comes up on YouTube searches, a little Jordan Peterson video where he talks about the Grand Inquisitor. And he says, Dostoevsky was so courageous because Dostoevsky doesn't agree with Ivan, but he's willing to give all the good lines to Ivan. He's willing to build the best case for atheism and for moral relativism that he possibly can. He's not even going to bring it with, well, Jordan Peterson doesn't say this, but I'm going to say this. He doesn't even bring it with the the other point of view, like Alyosha. I mean, it's cute, right? Alyosha, we'll talk about, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about the Grand Inquisitor, but you're reading this book where the atheist really does make a the most powerful, compelling, one of the great arguments for the evils of the church, for 
socialism for socialism like the bad i mean honestly i mean you have to yeah. it is something you reject the church reject christ and embrace socialism is basically what the grand inquisitor amounts to yep and but that's the best part of the book i mean that's the it part is the where best he, part of the book it's where, the part of the book that gets fire. pulled out and i have i have a my first reading of brothers karamazov was having to read you know just a little pulled out reprinted grand inquisitor chapter for religious yeah. studies classes yeah well, 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 I mean, well, obviously we'll talk more about all this stuff, but I'll say, I'll say it all later. So how did he get there? How did he get there? <laughs> how yes. did he get yeah. there? Well, there were already the roots of it when he was young, mm-hmm. but what, you know, you don't get to that point where you're so adept and so obsessed with the mind of broken people who have come close to the edge of lunacy without having had something foundational happen in your own life, some trauma mm-hmm. and boy, did Dostoevsky have it. And even those who are his big detractors, like we're going to talk a bit about. So the the last thing we'll do is talk about ways people view him. Mm-hmm. And Nabokov has maybe my favorite essay on him. It's, yeah. it's great. And even though he wrote Lolita and he, he all, but he's still, he often, he's like Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert could be perverse, right? Mm-hmm. But he still has some of the best essays on literature yeah. that are out there. His essay on Dickens is really great. Nabokov was brilliant. No question about it. And he lands on the side of Dickens. Does he? Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Anyways. Um, You're going to give us some context about Russian. I was going to give us some context about Russian history up to this mm-hmm. point, especially the Romanov family. And so there's not a whole lot. You, so like with Tolstoy, we give background to the serfs and all that. You don't really need it here, right? Because it's not really part of the story. I'm not sure the serfs make an appearance at all. What you do need some background on is the politics that got us to this point, because it really matters in the relationship that the, so the church has to the throne. In the 1800s, you, were, you had a revival in the Russian Orthodox Church, which would give you the things that Father Zosima would be committed to. But also the church was pretty corrupt at another angle in the sense that it was combined with the power of the throne, very similar to the connection with the Pope and the Holy Roman Empire, for example. Right. And what this meant is that you had, a, you had emperors who both wanted to expand the Russian empire, but then also were afraid of doing so because they were afraid of what their people were going to do to them. And so you see the example like when in War and Peace with Alexander. The actual history behind Alexander is that he took his men after defeating Napoleon and having these victories, he took them to Paris and they saw Paris and they're like, wow, this is how the Europeans live. And we have to live the way we live in Russia. And it's just, there is this disconnect, right? And so people wanted to bring European influences into Russia. But then you also had Russian Orthodoxy and other things that were trying to push against that and say, well, let's not bring all of it over here, right? And so there's this tension that's building up. So there's always those long passages in French and Tolstoy where the, sh- the show-offy socialite characters. Will- yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, especially with the nobility, they wanted some of these modernizing influences. And this reached a head with Nicholas, um, who came after Alexander. And he was fairly brutal in his conservatism. He believed in what I think it was what he called the church, autocracy, and that was pretty much it. In other words, he was going to rule and there was going to be orthodoxy. And everybody who tried to oppose that would be an enemy to him. And so he tried to bring some of these old Russian ways back to the country. And this would lead to uprisings in the nobility. And in fact, war and peace pointed towards that at the end of war and peace with Pierre, right? With the Decembrist revolution. Which, you know, you, we talked about the bittersweet sadness, how that book ends with suggesting that Pierre was one of the victims of Nicholas in the Decemberist Revolution. All this to say, when Dostoevsky got involved with young socialists in the 40s, Nicholas was still on the throne, and Nicholas didn't look at this too favorably. <laughs> and so all of them eventually got themselves arrested, even though Dostoevsky was just a gambler and really wasn't that much committed to young, the, the young socialist movement. He was still involved with this group that had some terrorist intentions. And so they all got sentenced. And one morning, their jail cells were thrown open. They were all take, taken out into the square. I think it was in Moscow. I'm not sure. I, can't, I don't remember where. But still, it was, it was one of the public squares. And they were told, you're about to be, you're, you've been um, sentenced to execution. Three of them were taken out. They were lined up. Soldiers lifted their guns and they were about to fire. And at that moment, someone comes up and says, actually, the czar has, in his kindness, 
has commuted their sentence to hard labor <laughs> in Siberia. Turns out that this was all part of the ploy, right? They were mm-hmm. never going to be executed. But it was enough that one of the men there went insane on the spot and was never normal again, right? So, I mean, it was that, you can imagine, it was that intense. They thought they were about to be killed. And this was part of their punishment. And so, this had a huge effect on Dostoevsky. I mean, he was already struggling with epilepsy. He was already struggling with his childhood, the death of his mother, all these things, and then have this on top of it. And then he goes and he's put into this prison camp where he's chained up all day long. Horrible beds, horrible sleeping conditions. He wrote about it in one of his novels later on called The House of the Dead. Some people actually say that this is his his best work, that The House of the Dead is his best if you go and read that. But it's about his experiences there, and it actually shows things that Yvonne would be obsessed with, like The House of the Dead is full of prison guards who delight in torturing inmates and have no qualms against killing children. And so you can think about the stories that Yvonne tells before he gets to the Grand Inquisitor, right? Mm-hmm. With the Turks and the babies and all that. Yeah. Um, or the awful story about the surf with the child that he has the dogs hunt down. Yeah. So it's really difficult to overstate how important this was in his life. But while he was in prison, he would still read quite a bit. Um, He read a lot of Dickens in prison. He read a lot of other authors in prison. I point out Dickens because later on I'll want to come back to that, but that's when we actually start talking about Dostoevsky. He also, in prison, rediscovered his Christianity or his orthodoxy in a way that would push him away from his socialist leanings and more towards conservatism. And in fact, to such an extreme that he would become friends with like one of the chiefs of the sort of the religious conservative regime under the czars later on in his life. Hmm. And so he kind of did a, a three, not a 360, a 180, right? In, in his, in the way that he viewed the world. To be fair to him, he really never was that committed to being a socialist in the first place. But you can see those struggles and those ideas in the Grand Inquisitor later on. A few other biographical things that are important to point out. Once he got out of prison, finally, he did meet a woman, got married, and they went for a while to Geneva in Europe to tour. It was, while they were there, they had a little girl who died like within the first weeks or months. And so that was very devastating to him. His wife ended up dying. His brother ended up dying as well. So he was just surrounded by death. He married again, and right before the Brothers Karamazov, actually, which was his last work, they would have another son named Alyosha who would die of epileptic fits like within his very short life. So while he was still very young as well. And that would just devastate Dostoevsky, the loss of that child as well. And so what's tricky, what's difficult about Dostoevsky is that I do think that when you're reading him, you really are dealing with someone who dealt with a lot of trauma in their life, the death of two of their children in a horrible way. His son who had the epilepsy that he gave to him because it was a a genetic thing in their family to watch him die. You know how devastating that had to have been as well. Mm -hmm. And so when you're reading his works, you really can see the writings of someone who was broken by all of this stuff. Like, you know, people use that word broken so cheaply today. We're all broken. But this man was seriously, legitimately broken. And you can see that in his works. Like he had something wrong with him. And you can have some sympathy with it because you have to imagine that he just was dragged deeper and deeper into these neuroses that were already part of his identity, part of his character, by these horrible events of his life. You know, the death of a wife, the death of children, death of his brother, the death of his father by murder, his mother mother dying when he was young, and all this stuff, just being imprisoned and thinking you're going to die. He had a really, really hard life. Before, so you get to the end of his life, 1881, his last major work is The Brothers Karamazov. Um, He began writing it in 1878. It was adapted from some other things that were abandoned ideas that he had. And it was actually supposed to be the first part of a series. This was like volume one of the story of the Karamazovs. And he only finished this one and then he died. Before then, he had had some resurgence of his literary fame. Right after imprisonment, he wrote, like I said, The House of the Dead. And then shortly after that, he wrote Crimes and Punishment, which was what made his name. And some other works, but even then, even though those were popular and and books, they did well, he would always gamble his money away. And so he never had wealth. He never had success like that because he would always lose his money to his, to this demons that just gnawed away at him Mm -hmm. and he couldn't get away from. 
And so, and so that's the life of Dostoevsky. Kind of blew over some things there towards the past, towards the end of his life. But I, I stressed the things that I wanted to stress. So just a few other things to point out. One, just some con- one thing of context that would help with this book is that at this time in Russian history, with the Russian Orthodox Church, like I said, you had the sort of cold orthodoxy that had crystallized in like a papacy church relationship, the Holy Catholic Church with the, the nobility and all that weirdness with the throne. But then you also were having a bit of an actual revival in the church as well in certain monasteries. And this was what they called eldership. And it's not like elders like we think of with church elders, but it would be these monks who weren't necessarily ordained into any sort of ministry, but through the reputation they had in the public for being men who had led ascetic lives, denying themselves. Also, a a certain sort of prayer that has, has a name, but I can't remember, where they like go deep into their emotions, right? And they had some sort of also prophecy and a bit of mysticism as well. Even though it was more of those, so they had led lives that showed themselves being spiritual leaders that people could look to as being worthy of following and coming to get counsel from. And these guys would then be called elders, and Father Zosima is an example of this. But there were actually monasteries that were through, throughout Russia, Tolstoy went and received advice from some of these as well. Dostoevsky, Turgenev, all the famous writers that would go, and these guys were like, I guess kind of like the Jordan Petersons of their age, people that guys would go and try to get counsel from. And so, and they actually could offer some real wisdom. I mean, Father Zosima has some wisdom that he does offer to Alyosha. That's a part, and that actually was a part of this. Tolstoy himself didn't like this because he saw it as being the sort of rank mysticism that he thought was dangerous and he wanted to get away from that. It's interesting because Tolstoy, even though he wasn't a Christian and he, he was still the closest they had to like a Protestant because he was pushing against the Russian Orthodox Church. Right. Russian Orthodoxy, you had that sort of movement would be similar to like the Jesuit movement or something within the Catholic Church. But being a committed Orthodox man, uh, Dostoevsky was very intrigued by these ideas of the, uh, the elders in these monasteries. And so that kind of provides the background. For that part of the story. I mean, speaking of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, we looked into it some. We know that Dostoevsky was very interested in Tolstoy, very much saw him as being the giant that he was, read War and Peace and loved it. There's not a whole lot about Tolstoy's perspective on Dostoevsky. We have one mention that he read, I think it was The House of the Dead, and said it was the greatest work of Russian literature that he had read, uh, of modern Russian literature. And then he also, when Dostoevsky died, showed signs of regret that he wasn't there. He had never met him. Dostoevsky did, towards the end of his life, give a famous speech on Pushkin. And one person did point out that all the literary heroes of the time in Dostoevsky's, Dostoevsky's time was there, except for Tolstoy. Tolstoy did not come. So I think it's fair to say that Tolstoy just didn't. Just indifferent at best? He was pretty indifferent. Yeah. He had his own weird life that he was leading, and he really was indifferent towards most everything except for what Tolstoy was interested in, right? Tolstoy was going to do what Tolstoy was going to do. And Dostoevsky did not fall into that category for him. So fair enough. um, Speaking of them as well, a large divide in the critical landscape over whether or not you appreciate Dostoevsky or not centers around these two guys, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, because anybody who's read them realizes that they do such different things. Mm -hmm. I found a great essay on first things that I was reading by this guy named David Bentley Hart. I think it's Bentley. David B. Hart, where he points out that he himself, he's an Eastern Orthodox guy. He really appreciates Dostoevsky, but there's really no argument that Tolstoy is the better artist. And that's kind of where it comes down to. The way I see it, I actually agree with him. Nabokov kind of says the same thing. I mean, we can read some of the Nabokov high points here. Well, here's a good paragraph that's helpful. We must distinguish between sentimental and sensitive. A sentimentalist may be a perfect brute in his free time. A sensitive person is never a cruel person. Sentimental Rousseau, who could weep over a progressive idea, distributed his many natural children through various poorhouses. A sentimental old maid may pamper her parrot and poison her niece. The sentimental politician may remember Mother's Day and ruthlessly destroy a rival. Remember that when we speak of sentimentalists among them, Richardson, Rousseau, and Dostoevsky. 
<laughs> we mean the non-artistic exaggeration of familiar emotions meant to provoke automatically traditional compassion in the reader. Dostoevsky never really got over the influence which the European mystery novel and the sentimental novel made upon him. And let's see, where is his... Yeah, he seems to have been chosen by the destiny of Russian letters to become Russia's greatest playwright, but he took the wrong turning and wrote novels instead. Mm. Which I think is pretty telling and pretty accurate, too. Dostoevsky, maybe the meanest sentence he wrote. Dostoevsky's last lack of taste, his monotonous dealings with persons suffering with pre-Freudian complexes, the way he has of wallowing in the tragic misadventures of human English words, expressing several, although by no means all, aspects. Pushlost, I don't know what that is. Probably a Russian word for something. Are, for instance, cheap, sham, smutty, highfalutin, and bad taste dignity. All this is difficult to admire. <laughs> so I'm glad he gave it the old college try. <laughs> yeah. And I also found someone who is quoting Borges. So whether or not Borges said this or not, I still think it's true in that what they claim Borges said is that uh, it's basically adolescents are the ones who admire Dostoevsky. By the time you grow up, you need more mature work. So Dostoevsky's for your adolescence. Eventually, you want to grow up and like mm -hmm. something better. And that's kind of what the divide comes down to. There's a famous book by Steiner called Tolstoy versus Dostoevsky. His main argument is that Tolstoy was the great epic writer of Russia, while Dostoevsky was the uh, dramatist. And I think Steiner's wrong because he actually groups Dostoevsky with Shakespeare Boo. and Tolstoy with Homer. This guy here, David Bentley Hart here, who wrote this article, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, which I think might be kind of his take on Steiner. He doesn't really outright say that, but still, it's good. He groups Tolstoy with Shakespeare. You mm -hmm. know, these great, these guys who have such a profound view, profound and broad view of life and of the beauty of life and the details of life. That they create these wonderfully elaborate worlds of their own with people who actually have psychologically real reactions to the world yes <laughs> that's tolstoy and that puts tolstoy into a rare group of people yeah yep and i think we've i mean i guess what i want to say in ending this is that what i've found looking into dostoevsky reading critics who talk about dostoevsky is that we on the bookending have been right all along yep <laughs> and placing tolstoy up there with shakespeare and austin is like the great trifecta of what you want to try and reach for if you want to be an artist our initial gut reaction that pushed us away from Dostoevsky in the beginning. Because even five years ago, when we were just starting this podcast, we were still all grown up so much that Dostoevsky could do nothing for us. We tried. I mean, I guess we should, yeah. that's part of the bookening's larger uh, baggage with this thing. We tried to read The Idiot and which it's has the a, only book that we, is it the only, it's one of two books that we've abandoned. Yeah. We've never, uh, is there another book? Yes. I guess Blood Meridian. We, Blood Meridian we abandoned, not because anything artistic well it's just it was just too it was hard. just content yeah it was just the content was too yeah we didn't want to encourage readers to read that right and i guess to be fair here i would say that if the novels that i've read by dostoevsky brothers karamazov comes the closest to having the least dostoevsky parts to it yes <laughs> with alyosha and some of the stuff that happens with the kids there is some stuff that gets close to getting away from Dostoevsky. I think the narrator has a sense of humor and I think Dimitri actually as a character feels yeah. a little bit like he's not going to be an existentialism puppet for about half the book and then suddenly he's just another existentialism puppet. Yes. Who interestingly enough just kind of has to vanish and disappear so you can leave it to Yvonne having his Victorian woman melodramatic breakdown <laughs> and the madness. So. Oh brother, I suppose we'll talk more about that next time i have a question for you brendan but i'm gonna save it for next time as a, yeah. as a teaser so I have a, right. I have a context question but i'm gonna ask it next time right now we need to call out our patrons jake how do you become a patron of the bookening go to patreon.com forward slash the bookening sign up to give at any level if you want a shout out you have to give at least ten dollars a month five dollars gets you access to wonderful behind the scenes bonus content at 25 dollars a month you get a oh you get your uh Annual T-shirt. Your this annual T-shirt. Yeah. Uh, it's not Christmas, y'all. Christmas, y'all. And the year before that was terrifyingly right. Mm -hmm. And who knows what it'll be this year? But it, was, get it came around. dangerously close to being wiped that chili out of your mustache, Nietzsche, last year. But <sighs> and then we made ourselves sick. Yeah, just trying to design. Yeah. We it. had somebody. Yeah. Somebody designed some art for us, and that was like, wait a minute. Maybe we don't want. We to don't. See maybe we don't want that on a T-shirt. That's with kind of gross. Chili in his mustache. <laughs> yeah, and it's not so, so uh, pleasant to look at. But thank you for designing that art anyway. 
and fifty dollars a month, one of our most popular levels gets you the t-shirt, gets you the the shout out. Most fun gets you every book that we do it well enough in advance to read it along with us. So it's basically the book club membership. Yep. You get every book we do, nice copies, uh, personally signed with thoughtful, interesting messages from each of us. Thoughtful and interesting. Profound. Um, Profound. And plenty, and plenty of time to read along with us so that you're ready to go when our episodes drop. Mm-hmm. So today we signed copies of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and The Invisible Man. Got a box sitting right over here. Mm-hmm. ready to ship out. And that's why we're recording. So you'll be listening to this even after we've, I think, put these in the mail. Yeah, yeah. People so, should probably have them by the time you hear this. So yeah, $50 a month gets you that. $100 a month gets you the ability to control what we read, to pick one book a year. And so we have a couple of people signed up at that level and they've chosen books. And um, maybe you've heard, if you've listened to all our or the last episode, We've already altered our schedule and are working things around so that we can fit some of those books in. So um, if we get 12 people at that level, we never have to worry about our book list again. That's true. Yeah. Maybe we should like put a limit on that of like 10 or something like that. So we can at least pick two books a year. (laughs) But we've never felt the need. We've not really been in in danger of having too much of. Yeah. yeah, I think if that's the problem that we have to deal with, then we can cross that bridge. Oh, darn. Yeah. Oh, darn. They're giving us. 10 people are, or 12 people are giving us $12. Anyway, uh, yeah, this year we're reading Rebecca by Demur, or however you say her name. We're reading The Sacred History of the Dun Cow. What's that thing called? Book of the Dun Cow. And we're reading Ender's Game. So three books that I don't think probably would have ended up on the list apart from patrons, but I'm excited to read all three of them. Yeah, thank you, patrons. So, and I'm thankful for the money. And speaking of money, if you get us up to 2K, which is our next Patreon goal, then we will be able to pay Brandon to read Ready Player One, or Ready Player Two, forgive me. Not reading that thing again. He's not reading it, except <laughs> for for money. Yeah. Should we make him read Ready Player One again? Maybe. <laughs> for the for money? I think we need to come back. For we need context. to do a separate episode, or set series of episodes on Armada, and we need to come back and do a whole Ernest Klein yeah. Year, maybe? Mm-hmm. Like we did Year of Tolkien. The Year of Klein. Go, go back to Ready Player One and I love it. Again. Get I us up like to 5,000 and I will read Armada out loud <laughs> and just we can just have videos. And then get sued it. by Ernest Klein for. Yeah. Uh, I was like, hey, Brandon will be dead by the end of that reading anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He won't survive it. <laughs> That'll be his Dostoevsky <laughs> moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sick man. I'm a. man. Hey, folks, let me shout out some patrons real quick. I'm going to just read through this list real quick, guys, because we have to usher some new people in, so I want to get to them quickly. Robert Rana, I mean, you guys can say something, though. You guys can. I want you guys just do whatever you want that doesn't involve silence. Robert Rana, the Lovebird, the Arts Philanthropy Dodger, the Anthony's Cigar Store, the Immortal Chelsea Annie Oakley, Lily of the Valley. No! Bird, the Keith Master, David's Mighty Man Trucking, John and Jill and Little Baby Max, Jade, Katie, who are cold and love cheese, and also see us and killing Julian faces. Fairy Princess Dracula. of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth, Frank Prime Adam, Jeremy the Dark Hooded Lord, Dracula. 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 Maya. Maya. Adventure, Judith the Blaze, did we already do DJ. Maya? Wait, wait. No, I said no, because you were doing the Frankenstein thing. <laughs> oh. DJ Sandy, oh. Benny and Danny Tiberius, Eric and Catherine, Dracula. Breaks, Frankenstein, Dracula, Frankenstein, Dracula, Frankenstein, No constricted marriage, keep the fair and Frankenstein, Frankenstein, Dracula, Frankenstein, the Texas Ranger, Rachel, Rachel, Frankenstein, Midnight Ninja, Alan, Turn of the Jedi, Jay Brackenbrew, and Timothy the Writer of Dune, Eric and Kate, the Camp Champions, who are warm and lumpy. Sweet Jamie Sunshine, How the Keeper of Eternal Darkness, Lord the Keeper of Eternal Life, Cold Steel, Cody Jacklin, the Librarian, Barbarian, Don Bombadillo, Bomb Diggity, and Captain Tingle, his mate, saxophone Alex, the other saxophone Alex, and Dubstep Danny, Ryan the Terror of Texas, and Eric of the Cream and Crimson, who are stuck in the cold. Please send cheese. Now, guys, the first new patron, Ben and Kyla. Yeah, we got Ben and Kyla. We got Ben and Kyla. Welcome to the podcast, Ben and Kyla. Hey, welcome, Ben and Kyla. Ben and Kylo Ren. Ren? Ben's you've, <laughs> you've done it again. Ben Solo, Solo and, and Ren. Ben Solo and Kylo Ren. Yeah, there you go. We've got John. Welcome to the podcast, John. We had a bunch of people sign up over Christmas. 
That's great. Thank awesome. you guys. Thank you so much. Welcome, John. John, I'm going to call him the Cosmic King of Chaos. John, John. the Cosmic King of Chaos. Uh, we've got Matthew. Welcome, Matthew. What's up, Matthew? Matthew. Uh, Matthew, the bringer of doom. Matthew, the minesweeper. Mind flare. Matthew, the mind flare. That's not bad. You okay with Matthew the Mind Flayer? Yeah. After the greatest yeah, Netflix kind of, show ever. <laughs> kind of rip on Stranger Things from yeah. time to time. Annie? We know that Nathan secretly loves. He really does. I've seen exactly one season. I did not understand why it was as popular as it was. Actually, I understood exactly why it was as popular as it was, and I rejected humanity. Now, finally, Annie. Get your gun. Annie, get your gun. Oh, I like that. Annie, Annie are you okay? <laughs> Annie, are you okay? Annie, get your gun. I don't want to ask Annie if she's okay every single podcast, but I like Annie. <laughs> Annie, are you okay? Annie, are you okay? Are you How about okay? we combine them? Annie, are you okay? Get your gun. <laughs> All right. Or it could be Annie, get your gun. Are you okay? I think Annie, Annie are you okay? Get your gun. Annie, are you okay? Annie, are you okay? Get your gun. Annie, are you okay? Get your gun. Does that indicate that she's okay, therefore she okay? should get your gun? Yeah. Well, yeah, you okay? Get your gun. Like, yeah. It can go either way. I think it depends on the mood. Like, if you're good to go, get your gun. Let's go. Or, or K are, are you under threat? Get your gun. Get your, oh, no. You better get your gun. Okay. Annie K, gun. <laughs> Annie K, gun? No, I like Annie. You okay? Get your gun. <laughs> Annie, you okay? Annie K, yeah. gun. Maybe it'll get shortened to Annie K, gun. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, that- it, I, Bang, bang. There's a YouTube video of that, that is where they've done the dumb thing where they upgrade it to 60 frames per second. And I don't usually like that, but it's fun to watch Michael Jackson and something approximating real. Almost like theater. Movement. Yeah. It's just fun to watch his moves. He's who? He holds up, man. Yeah. Jackson. Jackson. Yeah. Great guy. Are we supposed to be talking about him? <laughs> I don't know. Didn't he get canceled? He as canceled? a dancer. That's all I meant. As My, a dancer. And I Michael think, who? as a performer. As a, as a, as a pop performer. I was, don't talk about Michael Jackson anymore. I don't talk about him either. Sorry, guys. Who? Exactly. I am way too cultured and refined for that sort of thing. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> wow. Hey, the book. Smooth criminal. <laughs> yeah, the book. The beginning was written in today. Fun, fun story. I mean, Macaulay Culkin, who still stands by Michael Jackson, has been calling for Donald Trump to be removed from Home Alone too. I saw that. Out. Yeah, yeah. Hilarious. Yeah. Hey, Trump. If I'd. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done, Brandon. Thank you. All right, folks. I'm not Thank even going to give the credits. Goodbye. Goodbye.